the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she's unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say this to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. (coughs) To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give that one on the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Christchurch Thyatira was a friendly place. Medium-sized church in the town of the same name. Thyatira, the city itself, was a centre of purple cloth trade and various guilds were around the city. It meant that there were, if you were trained, there were jobs available to you. Wool workers, linen workers, makers of outer garments, dyers, leather workers, tanners, potters, bakers, slave dealers and even bronzesmiths. As a church, it was known for being warm, inclusive, very welcoming. A place where people accepted you for who you were, perhaps, place where they weren't that judgmental. They gave you some space. They didn't look too closely at your lives and your baggage and what was going on. They didn't look down on you. A friendly, tolerant church was Christ Church Thyatira. And of course, in one sense, that's a really good thing to be. To be friendly, to be accepting, to be non-judgmental, to be places that, in some sense, reflect Jesus and the way he hung out with all kinds of people. Look how he dealt with people. Look at how he dealt people messed up with sin. Well, so the folk at Christchurch Thyatira said, well, that's a bit like us. We, we want to associate with people that other people wouldn't associate with. We want to rub shoulders with them. We want to love them. We don't want to judge them too much. But then it's striking how Jesus is described in verse 18. Do you remember each time we've said, when there's a description of him at the start, it's for a reason. It's not just random. But for each letter, there's something that we learn about the letter from the way he is described. So verse 18, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Or again then in verse 23, then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. You see, this is a church that tolerates it seems to tolerate too much. Toleration at times is of course a good thing. Their toleration, Jesus says, is not. 
what they are tolerating within the body of Christ is damaging them. It's damaging their witness and it is wrong. And in fact, when it comes down to it, it's actually it's not toleration, it's compromise. So the first thing that we see, if you're the sort of note taker who likes to have titles, then the first one we see is the reality of compromise. Verse 20, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. Now before we try and work out why she's tolerated, again, we need to do them justice. And we need to see, as we do every week, the stuff that Judas highlights as being good. He always wants to encourage them where he can. And you see it in verse 19. You see, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance. I know that you are now doing more than you did at first. You see, it seems an active church. Faith is active. Trust in Christ is not simply academic or a box that we tick or a hypothetical thing. It's, it's lived out in daily life. And he sees them and he sees what they do and it's right that we're clear on this because sometimes we can be duped into thinking Jesus doesn't want activity. We can think Jesus just wants a faith that doesn't actually do anything. People say I'm saved by faith alone. I don't need to do anything. But then we say, well look at James and see that faith without works is dead. Or maybe people say, well my faith is a very, very real thing but it's very personal. I don't want to kind of live that out in public. It's a thing for me and the Lord behind closed doors. I'm not sure the Bible gives us that kind of category though. I'm not sure there is that category of private faith in a sense. It's all public. It's impacting all of your lives. And it seems to me that Thyatira have have got that. They are loving and trusting and serving and persevering. They're growing in activity as a church. They're doing it more and more and more it seems. And Jesus celebrates that. Activity is not always a good thing. But he celebrates what they're doing. And starts off with that focus. And yet, yet there's a problem. They're overly tolerant, verse 20. I guess the question we need to get to grips with is what's going on within the situation, the context there. Partly to try and work out what's happening, but also then to think, well, what are the lessons for us? What are the lines we can draw to us? How do we stop ourselves making their mistakes? Why do they tolerate this woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet? It's a few things to say. The first thing, it's a reminder for us not to be sucked in by special titles. Um, Or at least claims to special titles. She believed she was a prophetess. She called herself a prophetess. And it seems that some of them have swallowed that lie. In fact, we were thinking about a similar thing from 1 Thess 5 this morning, that the fact that we don't just gullibly believe what people tell us, perhaps despite the authority that they claim that they have, just because they have a title or a label or credentials that they sell us, it doesn't mean that we, we believe them. But we want to test it and check it. Sometimes you get it um, in the news and in an academic world that so-and-so is this respected leader on something. And we must believe what they say. And then someone starts doing some sort of googling on the universities that they've been studying at. And it turns out it's just just a title they've bought online. They're not actually legit. They printed it themselves. Or maybe you've seen talented Mr Ripley. Uh, The line there that always strikes me is it's better to be a fake somebody than a real nobody. Well it seems here that this woman 
has claimed a special title that she is a prophetess. And we Christians can be hugely gullible. It's good to be trusting. But the church in Thyatira have swallowed the lies they've been told. We don't like to offend people and ask the hard questions. At least it seems to me implicitly from the passage that we need to not necessarily trust someone just because of whom they say they are. So don't be sucked in by special titles, but also special knowledge. So you get it in verse 24, a little bit further on in the letter. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, he says slightly sneeringly. So don't be sucked in by claims to special titles or claims to special knowledge. What are these deep secrets she's talking about? Again, we're, we're sort of listening into one half of the conversation and so we're doing our best to work out what's going on but we don't know for sure. Maybe it's some of the kind of ideas you get it as particularly John was writing towards the sort of Gnostics, a special knowledge that seemed to be around at the time. Essentially they claimed that your, your body didn't matter, what mattered really what was going on inside and so like a sort of fish and chip shop scenario, we, we get rid of the newspaper because that doesn't really matter and what's really important is the fish and chips inside but Actually, the Bible seems to say, no, no, we're all important, each bit of us. The outside, the body, what we do with our bodies, and our spirit, our soul and size. The Bible wouldn't agree with that sort of Gnostic idea. Maybe that's what's going on. But again, this kind of special knowledge that you sometimes pick up, I think is still pretty common. You know, the Lord has said this to me, and that means you can't really challenge it. It's something we often hear. And when you say, thus saith the Lord, essentially, it's very difficult to then say, well, I'm, should we pray about that? Can we check that? How do I know that is quite right? Why are you the fountain of special knowledge that we can't challenge? And so her title and her special knowledge, I think, are still sadly very common. It's one of the things that we say when, it's great, you've got Bibles on your laps. That makes me really happy. Because it means you're checking what I'm saying. And when there's stuff that's wrong, you come and grab me or you send me an email or you um, send me a snotty text in the week. That's a really good thing. Thank you very much for doing that. But don't believe me because of where I'm standing or because of what I do. Um, so where the, a minister says, this is, this is the truth, we want to check that with scripture. If a church says, this is how you interpret this passage, we have a special knowledge. You want to check that with scripture. Whether a teacher says they have a special prophecy or something and they, they give themselves an authority that perhaps isn't theirs. We want to check that as we open the Bible. Again, you see it as you hear Bible teachers justifying, perhaps not so much in the UK, but a bit, but justifying an extraordinary greedy lifestyle. Justifying personal planes or whatever it might be. You think, I want to check that with Scripture. Just because of who you say you are or what you say you know. I can't see that adding up with what I know of the Lord. And as we said, do please keep your Bibles open as we look at these verses. And then whenever we open up the Bible together, please do keep them open. I mean that. Or as you go into the, next, the Christian bookshop, as you go into St Andrews or wherever it is, and you see whatever the next fad is, the sort of next best-selling Christian book that promises to be the answer to all your problems and the thing you've been waiting for and here is the silver bullet. And can we open our Bibles to see whether it's true? Don't be duped by special titles and special knowledge. 
And I wonder as well, the third one, as we're thinking about Jezebel, don't be sucked in because it's what you want to hear. I find that striking in verse 20. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching she misleads my servants, deception of morality, and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Now who was Jezebel in the Bible? If you've been at Modern Road for a couple of years, you might remember we did a morning series with Elijah. And we came across her back in probably May 2015. Um, she was Ahab's foreign wife, King Ahab. And she's relevant because partly like Solomon's wives, she leads the people of God astray to other, to other gods, to false idols, to prophets, false prophets. But also because there's this history that's sort of tied in with her to do with sexual immorality, promiscuity. There's a whole culture that goes with it. And so, I think we said it last week, but I just wonder whether she's very popular because she says the kind of stuff that we want to hear. She doesn't call people to self-control or to sexual purity or to abstinence. That won't get her a great following. Rather, she calls people to sexual looseness and promiscuity. And of course, if you preach those kinds of things, you will get some followers and you will get some traction. It's as... Paul will put it to Timothy. It's what itching ears want to hear. She's not saying eat Brussels sprouts. She's saying have lots of sex. Again, it's perhaps relevant to our culture and our context too. She's not calling people either to, to um, personal, costly evangelism. But rather it seems a sort of multi-faith tolerance and compromise. That seems to be what's going on with these idol feasts that she's speaking of or that, that Jesus mentions. We've seen it in previous weeks. In their culture, the whole economy and the um, city was built around temple worship. And if you were a Christian and you said no to temple worship, thank you, and you turned your back on that, you would be shutting all kinds of doors. Um, relationships and financial doors. Uh, it would cost you in all kinds of ways. But here's Jezebel saying, you can carry on as you were, and you get to have lots of sex, and you see why she's popular. And so she claims a special title, she claims a special knowledge, and it's what itching ears want to hear. And I don't think that's far away from our situation today. Christians can still be very easily duped into all those kinds of things. It's scary. We're very trusting. I think it's scary too, though, as you see, not just the reality of compromise, but the response to the compromise that Jesus comes on to next. Verse 21 to 23. He says, I have given her time to repent of her immorality, that she is unwilling. So, I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead and all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. I think a number of striking elements there that jump out at us. The first one is that strikingly she is beyond repentance. Isn't that interesting? She's been given time to turn back to the Lord, but she's unwilling. The Bible says the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. But he still gets angry. He might be slow to anger. He might have a very long fuse. But the fuse is not infinite. 
And so it seems from verse 21 she's been given her final warning. She's not listened. And so it's too late. He won't force us, but finally when it comes to a point when he says enough is enough, then that is it. And I'm bound by this passage to say this, and I hope it's not true of anyone tonight, but you may know the Lord has been speaking to you over a period of time, and you have blocked it and ignored it. Perhaps you felt that compulsion, you've done nothing about it, you've not turned from your ways. We need to realise that his fuse is long, but it's not infinite. As we turn against him, so that can become a permanent thing. Hearts become hard, and our hearts are hardened, as we get what we want. So I have to say, if you know that's you, um, then respond this evening. Respond in repentance and faith. And turn to him, trust him. If you need to chat to somebody afterwards and pray about it, please do so. But the striking thing for me, for me firstly is that she is beyond repentance. The second one is that the judgment is present. See verse 22 and 23. I need to be clear and careful about this because people can get muddled on this. But the story of the Bible is that after the sin of Genesis 3, God imposed sickness and death upon the whole human race. We turn from him and there's a curse. It's part of the fallenness of the world. It's universal. It's for everybody. But sometimes, sometimes in scripture, God brings sickness and even death in relation to a particular sin at a particular time. I think it's unusual, but that seems to be what happens here. It's much more common before Jesus, but you do get it a couple of places after Christ as well. Um, So a couple of scriptures for you. Acts 6, Ananias and Sapphira, that famous account there. They tell the church leaders, this was the money that they've raised. This is all it was, we promise. And yet they were lying. And so the Lord seemed to take them out. I think you get it in 1 Corinthians 11 as well. It's interesting we're taking the Lord's Supper in a bit. But it seems that the church is being divided over economic lines, I think. That's what's going on there. Probably the rich folk taking advantage of the poorer folk. And yet still then taking the Lord's Supper together. So, showing their unity and love, in theory, with bread and wine, and yet it clearly being a divided church. Their actions show that they're lying. And so some there are are ill and fallen asleep. It happens here too in Thyatira. And it's unusual, but I think it still happens. I was at a conference a few months ago, um, back in June, and I heard the story of a young pastor in Australia who later becomes a seminary pro- professor who teaches um, a guy called Don Carson. Some of you will have books of his or heard his talks. I hope I'm not trusting him because of his title or his special knowledge. I don't think so. But it was a very interesting story. So, his seminary professor had a first ministry appointment in the outback of Australia. Small church, small town, middle of nowhere. And this church was completely corrupt. And the town was completely corrupt. And so this pastor, this young pastor arrives there and attempts to do the work of a pastor, attempts to open the Bible to his people, to reach out, um, to show the little city, the little town, um, the reality of the gospel. 
and to speak of the reality of the gospel. And he was blocked and laughed at and derided by his own leadership. And he ends up praying on his face before the Lord each day for six months, pleading for progress, praying that these eternal opponents would be turned or removed. And then in an extraordinary way, in the next six-month period, there were 35 untimely deaths in the church. And in the next year, there were 200 baptisms. I don't think that's normative. I don't think we expect to see that all the time, or particularly often. But it seems to me, sometimes the Lord still intervenes in extraordinary ways as he seeks to protect the Bride of Christ, the local church. So it's striking because she was beyond repentance, it's striking because there's present judgment, it's striking as well because it's comprehensive judgment. And so you see those who have committed adultery, whether literal or spiritual adultery with her, and then those tied in with the sin as well. So I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Sin has a way of spreading and infecting the lives of others. And so those who engage in it are culpable. But then there are implications for others who engage in it too. And sin spreads like cancer. So there's the reality of compromise. There's the response to compromise. But then thirdly, as we've seen every week, there's the the reality of hope. These warnings for these churches are to encourage them to repent. As with any warning in scripture, the warning is not to just to look at the warning or think about the warning, but to do something about the warning. And so there is hope still for the church in Thyatira. Um, you see hope firstly in verse 22. Have a look down. Jezebel um, may be gone. But those who have believed her special title and special knowledge, who have engaged in her teaching as it's itched their ears, unless they repent of their ways, repent of her ways. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. Again, if there are particular convictions for you from this passage... Then notice the unless words. Unless they repent of their ways. Warnings from Scripture are for our good that we might turn from ourselves back to Him. There's hope as well in verse 24, or 24 and 25. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. What is this hold on to what you have? Verse 25. I think as you take Revelation as a whole, the holding on picture, idea, is about holding on to the testimony of Jesus, to the word of the gospel to the word of the Lord. So how do we avoid tolerance that is sin? How do we avoid being misled? How do we avoid the compromise that we've read of here in Thyatira? The answer seems to very clearly be, verse 25, hold on to the gospel message. 
which isn't rocket science, but it's something we're to do each and every day. Hold on to the message that you have and trust it. Keep trusting it. Don't be duped by special titles or special claims or teaching that you kind of like and want to hear. But rather hold on to the gospel message, to the message of Christ. Hold on to Christ. And the promise is, the promise is we will reign with him forever. Verse 26 to 29. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. I will also give that one the morning star. Again, a picture likely of, of reigning and ruling. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we pray that you might help us to be those who, who hold on to the gospel message, to hold on until you return, to keep trusting you each day. And guard us, please, from, from being duped by people or by teaching that is not true. Lord, we confess that we, we see the reality of their compromise. We see your response to their compromise. And we know sin in our own hearts. And so might we be a people who, who repent. Who turn to you as the Lord who is gracious and compassionate. Who is slow to anger, abounding in love. And might we be a people, please, who look ahead to the return of the Lord Jesus. As we've been thinking about in the mornings and, and each week in the evening as well, would that true biblical hope increasingly shape us and help us to persevere, help us to keep going, help us to keep trusting you? And as we take the Lord's Supper in a bit, as we eat bread and drink wine remembering the body of Christ broken for us and his blood shed for us as we take that into our, our very selves as we remember and trust afresh his death for us help us to be those please who keep holding on and who daily trust in Jesus name Amen